I don't know about this one. This one's going to be different. Some of you know. I'm exhausted lately. And my content has been more sparse. For those of you asked what's going on with the family, things are going well. I don't want to discuss that tonight, but I do thank those that know what's going on. Thank you for that. And things are going good. But, um, the world lost Joe Manetta. And I felt I had to do this tonight. Uh, Max Manetta asked me to type something up. And after speaking to Max, I kind of felt like I owed the effort to speak on Gemini tonight. Despite the exhaustion, because sometimes in life, you just got to push that envelope. Make the effort for those you care about. And Gemini was certainly somebody I loved, admired, and cared about. And he's taken from us at the age of 48. And I don't quite get that, but um, I am Bill Amadeo, and I have to say from a command of Amadeo and Grable and Associates, and I always go in the Shy Lossy Six. But tonight, um, I think I'm just Billy Amadeo from Town. And I know there's lives you guys want to hear, but this is a live I have to do. I feel I owe that. So, those topics and quibs and things you want to see, we'll get back to them, but tonight's something more important. So, the obituary goes something like this. I want to talk about what the world was told. Then we'll talk about some things you should know about Joe Manana. He graduated from A.C. High in 1992. He graduated from Stockton in 2000. But many don't know is Joe works for some years after high school. He ended up teaching the Pleasantville High School District until he could no longer teach. He became president of the union out there. And he was an amazing athlete. And, uh, be remembered by Max, his brother, who's a close friend. His girlfriend, Violetta Hare Wilson. I don't know Viola. And he'll be reunited with Mrs. and Mr. Mineta, who are great people and two of the only parents from Margate ever gave a damn about me during those tough times. And we'll talk about some of those tough times. And... Hey, Tina. And I don't want to make this about me. Because you guys hear about me all the time. But it's hard not to incorporate my impressions and reflection with Joe. So I guess part of this, I didn't really prep. I'm just going to let it rip. I guess part of this will be my interactions with Joe. And um, I'll try to keep it together. And I guess in life, we lose things, right? We cut things off. 
and when geography changes and life changes, there's things that trickle away along the way. And I guess this part will be about me when I tell you I had to leave New Jersey. I had to. I just wasn't happy there. It was like a bad relationship that you kept trying to make work. And you couldn't make it work. Not for me. I mean, I'm sure I would have been successful in Jersey. But it would always been this emptiness. And when I had to cut the court, there were things and people you lost along the way. And there's things and people powerful people you love people you connect with but i had to make a change and sadly one of the things i lost along the way was the manetta brothers and life has a weird way of doing that you know one day i'm in jersey the next day i packed everything i own into a car and i'm off to lansing for law school and then 15 years go by and you're cool with people or you say hi or you text once in a while but you know I wish that I had stayed more in touch with Joe Manetta because I don't think I would have really done what I've done with life it wasn't for Joe and I'm going to go back to some of those times and just say that um when I was the undersized baseball player, when the Margate and Ventnor parents didn't like me, when I was lying about my address to just play on a goddamn baseball diamond amidst all these people who I have zero respect for, the Manettas took me in. They were my friends. They were like my big brother. They helped modify and mold and help my game evolve. But more importantly, they gave me this confidence and social acceptance I hadn't found as a poor white kid from Atlantic City. They were from Margate. They didn't have to be my friend, but they were. They were a little older, good baseball players, and we just connected. And I'll always be grateful to Menezes for driving me home in dangerous areas after travel baseball games. I remember, like, I didn't even know Joe. And I was sitting there as this little 15-year-old, and nobody wanted to play catch with me and warm up, and Joe, who was a great baseball player, took me under his wing. And there was a bond formed, and there's this amazing gratitude. Because let me tell you something, and I know, I don't even want to mention some names tonight, but you know who you are. You were never the ball player Joe Manetta was. And I wish to God Joe Manetta would have had more belief in himself and saw how great he was the way I saw. Because Joe Manetta could have played Division I baseball. He was a hell of a baseball player. One of the best catchers in the state. A power hitter. Joe could do it all in a baseball diamond. But in life back then... Sometimes image overcame substance. And I, I will just say some names. The Aaron Braunsteins, the Chris Graybonds, the Don Siglins, the Greg Smallwoods. Guys, if you're tuning in 
and I know some of you watch my stuff and still talk trash about me, you couldn't hold Joe Manetta's jock. He was such a superior baseball player. And if Mike Eisenstein and the powers that beat Atlantic City High would have recognized his talent and helped mold him, he probably could have played professional ball. He was that damn good. And I'll never forget Chris Graybon bitching how Joe Manetta should not win MVP of the 1992 Atlantic City High team. It should go to Todd Mangle. And you know why? Because of politics. And I hate goddamn politics, even though I've used it to my advantage. Joe was somebody who was so goddamn talented, but it went unnoticed. And I hate that about life sometimes. I hate that it doesn't matter what the stats say. It matters what some asshole says who can't do it. Like, this script was written in South Jersey. I'm trying to be pissed off tonight. But there was a script written. And if you didn't fit the mold of that script, you didn't get the accolade you deserve. And let me tell you, Joe Manetta deserved goddamn accolades. I remember when I'm 15 years old, and I got in a fight with Chris Graybon, who was three times my size on baseball team, and I went swinging with all my might, and I fought like hell. And Graybon probably would have killed me, but him and his idiot friends were around, and Joe Manetta just picked them up like a protector and threw them out of the way. He was the big brother. And while I had balls, he helped me understand life. And a question, why am I so angry? Well, you know what, Jason Gibson, I'll tell you why I'm angry. Because one of the best people I know is dead at 48 years old. And I'm angry that people didn't get to know him the way I knew him. And let me be clear, I don't want to make this about religion. Because I love God. And I'm still a Christian. I'm still a Catholic. You know, I don't go to church often. And I know there's a divine plan out there. But how the hell can I not question things when I see a Joe Manetta pass away at that age? I'm angry because my mom died at 50 and never got to enjoy life. I'm angry that Joe Manetta died before his time. I'm angry as I'm walking out of U of M. I'm grateful what they did for my son. For all the bullshit I went through with Bobby Reyes. I'm angry right now, Jason, because I don't understand goddamn life. It doesn't matter what the Google hits are or how much money's in the bank. I'm trying to understand the game of life. And right now I'm lost. Because somebody who was one of my best friends, who I lost touch with in my quest for whatever the hell this is, is gone. And I can't turn back the clock. So that's why I'm angry right now. I hope that answered the question. Joe Manetta was a protector. He was this amazing athlete and an even better man. And he put others first. Instead of trying to chase his baseball dream, he went into the workforce. And as he was helping his family, he then went back to school. And he would have been a great baseball coach. But what did he do instead? 
He worked hard as a teacher and ran that union. What I'm really pissed off about right now what really hurts the most right now is Joe Manetta is the person we should all aspire to be. The person who puts others first. But in that quest for the limelight that we're all chasing, that God knows I soaked in. Brilliance can be silent. And when brilliance is silent, we miss out on things. And we lose track of people. One of my biggest regrets about the Michigan transition was losing touch with the Manettas. Because I do owe them both so much. And now I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, Life's too goddamn short. And I don't have the answers. And I don't demand the world. And it's hard. Hard to explain unscripted loss. And what I mean by that is there's certain things in life we understand. There's certain things that make sense. There's certain times one and one makes two. And even if it's painful, you get that it makes two. But I don't get when one and one equals 11 and I miss the formula. That's what I don't understand tonight. No matter what you guys think of me, Love me, hate me, respect me, whatever. There was a time when I was this tiny little scared white kid from the hood who just wanted to play baseball and who was being made fun of for my mock trial and my writing and somebody who was great, who was older, who I saw coolness in, patted me on the back, helped me warm up told me it was okay. Joe Manetta told me it was okay to be me. And that's hard to find in life. And I owe him. And I can't get, that, can't get that time back. It is one of the fatal regrets I have going from Jersey to Michigan some of the people I lost touch with. And understand something. I did what I had to do. And at the end of the day, I don't regret that. But I wish I would have made more of an effort to stay in touch with a few people. And Joe is right on top of that list. There's Joe, there will never be another you. You were so great beyond what anybody in that little screwed-up area could ever see. You were a cut above. You were a cut above as a ball player. You were a cut above as a teacher. You were a cut above as a union leader. And most importantly, my friend, you were a cut above as a man.
And I know I am so much better of a person for having known you. And I'm gonna miss you, bro. Rest in peace, man. Love you. is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Today we're going to discuss defending the Capitol case, and people have been asking me about this one. We'll first discuss what the Capitol case is and how we break it apart, and just the process. And um, there's been a lot of talk lately about political futures and what you want to do. And I will say this. The CPS cases I've done in Lenaway have certainly opened my eyes to a lot of things, and 
I look at people like Mark Green, I look at people like Scott Corner, and I do think if I ran for prosecutor in a couple years, I think I'd be pretty good at it. But I also know being a good prosecutor means you have to understand the other side of defense. And understanding defense is critical. So what a capital case is. A capital case is somebody facing life in prison. And what we've seen in Michigan is this trend of CSC prosecutions. More CSC prosecutions than any state in the country right now. And that's crazy when you think about it. There's more CSCs of late than in New York, than in New Jersey, California, Texas. We're seeing a big influx of the Me Too movement come into Michigan. So let's talk about that first. If somebody was truly raped, and I look at this every day on the CPS cases now, if I believe somebody is truly raped, they should be hung out. You got to go at those people hard. But we got to make sure we get it right. When the term rape comes up, politics gets involved, right? And when it becomes a political issue, it's easy to lose the truth. Remember one thing, and again, this is the admiration for the Scott Corners and the Mark Reens of the world. The goal of a good prosecutor is not to get a conviction. The goal is to uphold justice. That's lost too often. The goal of defense counsel is not on the same level in the ethical spectrum. Defense counsel is supposed to provide the best possible defense within the rules of evidence, within the rules of professional responsibility. So right now I have I think 85 capital cases, which is probably more than anybody in the state. Most people don't have more than 10 in their career. So when you're talking about a capital, the pressure's on, right? And you got to do it from soup to nuts, from A to Z. How do you defend this case? What goes into the prosecution? Understand the media attention involved in it. What we're going to do today is take it from the onset. And we'll take it by county and see how different counties play with that. Because the way you defend a capital in Wayne is not the way you're going to defend a capital in Washington. And so not the way you're going to defend a capital in Lenaway or Shiawassee. Every county has its own distinct language. We need to understand that. So let's start from the beginning. Pre-investigation stages. And quite often what will happen as a defense lawyer is you will pick up a case from somebody else. Whether it be a public defender or a previously retained counsel. And then sometimes you got to clean up somebody else's mess. Every lawyer approaches this differently. So what I'm going to tell you today is my approach. And what my approach is may be different than what other people do. But I want to tell you what I do when I have it from the onset. First thing you got to do is when you know your client's being investigated and have not been charged yet, is you find out who the officer in charge is. Find out who that OIC is. The officer in charge, that is the individual who is basically the lifeblood of the case. They are the ones that are leading the investigation. 
They're the ones where the reports go through. And the first thing you should do as a good defense lawyer is say, hey, Joe Smith is my client. All communication will now go through me. If you issue a warrant, let me know. And I will bring them in immediately. So you don't have to put the cops at risk. But you got to make communication go through me. Now let me explain that. Because there are some lawyers who advise clients to disregard warrants. Which is the craziest thing in the world to me. When there's a warrant issued, we have to consider safety of the community. And this is why the term lawyer and counselor go hand in hand. Think about that. When you're thinking counselors, you're thinking therapists, you're thinking social workers, etc. But the term counselor goes with lawyer. The police have done an investigation. They present the investigation to the prosecutor. The prosecutor approved that investigation. They present it before a magistrate. The magistrate signed off on the warrant. So right now, your client is now officially in the system. To protect the cops, to protect the community, and to get your client the best possible bond, you tell that officer, I'm going to bring them in. I will argue bond. I will make your job safe. And I will start the process efficiently. Now, some officers will be grateful for that. Some won't care. Some have cowboy syndrome. Cowboy syndrome means this. Sometimes an officer will want to go make the arrest and try to circumvent the lawyer. When they do that, they're usually young rogue officers that do that. You have to use that against the officer. To get a defendant into the court system is supposed to be a team effort. Obviously, we may see the case differently, but to circumvent the warrant is not going to help your client at all. Now, as far as interviews, let's discuss this. This is not a one-size-fits-all proposition in any way whatsoever. Let me explain. A lot of lawyers will tell you in the pre-investigation stage or the pre-tried stage, if you want, never let your client talk to the police. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this. This depends on the county, depends on the circumstance. I'm going to tell you, talking to the police is generally not a good thing for a criminal defendant. However, there are times when I will bring a defendant into the police station with them. I will have them deny the allegations. I will sit there with them, and if I think they're in trouble, I'll pull them out. Now, you may say to yourself, why? I've heard other lawyers say they'll never do that. In certain counties, going in for a police interview could actually lead to a case not getting issued. In other counties, not going to an interview will automatically lead to an issue of charges no matter what. And then if I know a case is going to go to trial, I've done this before in one trials with this. I'm going to tell the jury when we get to that point, we're early in the game right now, okay? I had nothing to hide. I brought my client to the police station. I sat there with him. I did that. Would a guilty person do that? It helps. 
in most capital cases, putting your client on the stand is going to adversely affect their chances of getting a not guilty. And no matter what anybody tells you, let's just cut through it right now, okay? The burden of proof lay with the prosecution. That's what the United States Constitution and the Michigan Constitution tell us. That's a fallacy. When you are charged with a crime, the burden of proof lay with the defense counsel. Nobody objectively looks at the situation and says, oh, that guy must have been set up. We have to put the offense in defense. What I mean by that is very simple. You have to get aggressive. Respectfully be aggressive in this situation. To just sit on your hands and hope that good things will happen for your client is a way to get your client convicted. You have to say to yourself right now, do I want to get a great plea for my client? Do I have to run the gauntlet and go to trial on this? From the outset, you got to have a GPS system in place. In some cases, when the politics come into play, a good plea may not even be a possibility. You got to know that before you take somebody's case, before you take their money and put your name on the dotted line. What is my agenda here? Your agenda should always be to get the best possible outcome for your client. But as Scott Grable always said, some cases are about guilt and innocence. Some cases are about risk assessment. You have to study because what you're doing, guys, is you're advocating for somebody's life on a capital case. Sometimes a win is a not guilty at trial. Sometimes a win is a sentence of probation. Sometimes it's Haida. Sometimes it's a feral. Sometimes it's 7411. Sometimes it's a year in county jail preventing them from prison. Sometimes it's getting that probation violation quashed if they got multiple things going on. Sometimes it's getting a global across the board when they're stuck in three counties on different charges. You can't approach every case the same way. You gotta analyze that. And when the police do interviews, this is happening a lot close to home, you gotta watch those interviews carefully. There's something called Public Act 212. And I see this violated more than anything. Public Act 212 tells us when there's an interrogation going on, the police have to record such. How often do we see cases where the officer says, well, this is what the defendant told me, so I'm going to write it down for you. We're putting the cop on the honor code when somebody's life is on the line. Record the goddamn thing. Record it. Let's watch it. Let's make sure everything went right. Make sure Miranda was properly read. Make sure there was no physical abuse. Make sure KIV was in place. If there was a confession, was it done in a knowingly, intelligently, and voluntary manner? Body cam and dash cam. People lose sight of this. And you have to put this in your discovery request, okay? Body cam, dash cam, interviews. The whole point of recording this was to protect the police. It was to make the system fair. And when an officer goes rogue, when they don't follow what the law says they're supposed to follow, we have to call them on that. 
If we do not, we're committing malpractice. Now, in that pre-stage interview, here's where things collide. Let's discuss the polygraph. In the state of Michigan, every sheriff's department has a polygraph unit or they defer to the Michigan State Police Department. What does this mean, guys? It means your tax dollars are paying for polygraphs to be done in the state of Michigan. Now, the polygraph can be a very powerful thing. I look at people like Andrew Longusky and I say, okay, this is a guy who's trying to get to the truth. Longusky ran the Michigan State Polygraph Unit for years. And when I look at Longusky, I will send somebody to a private polygraph with them. When we discuss the polygraph, never send your client in for a police polygraph before you've conducted a private polygraph. And this is where socioeconomics come into play. A police polygraph doesn't cost any money because the tax dollars are paying for it. Now, understand something. And Nancy, I know what they do in Lenaway, and I'm not even going to touch that right now because I would never send a client to another state to do a polygraph. That's insane. If you do the Longusky polygraph, in my opinion, and I'm friends with Longusky, I will say that's better than, or just as good as any police polygraph. He's not just going to pass somebody. Okay, let's understand that. But there's a lot of rogue polygraphers. There was a case I had in Sandusky where a polygrapher literally wrote out the statement and the idiot signed it. We got to remember something. Again, we're not trying to get a conviction. We're trying to get to the truth. And a good private polygraph is the way to go. Remember this about polygraphs, guys. I don't care what anybody says. Innocent people can fail polygraphs. Guilty people cannot pass a polygraph. And when a prosecutor does not care about a past police polygraph. That's a rogue prosecutor. And I will speak to different prosecutors, and you know who I'm talking about, whether they work for the attorney general's office or they're local. When you don't care about a past police polygraph, you don't care about the truth. And that's messed up. Because I'll tell you this, when somebody makes an admission in the pre-test or the post-test, the same prosecutors that will not care about a past test will utilize that confession to try to advance their case. And the dangerous part about a police polygraph is you do not have a right to have a lawyer in there. Think about that for a minute. So I send my guy into the police, and for one to four hours, depending on how long that goes, I could sit outside, I could be on my phone, I could tell them they could stop the test, but many people will cave to the pressure. And when people tell the police what they think the police want to hear, people end up in prison for the rest of their life. So you got to be careful with the polygraph. I've had people pass with Longusky that I will not send to the Michigan State Police Polygraph Unit because I don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to get tripped up? 
It depends who the polygrapher is. There are some amazing polygraphers employed by the state of Michigan. And there are some that are the pure scum of the earth. You have to know your playing field. When you go that route of the polygraph, you know what county you're in. Because somebody like a Mike Babbage in Washington, and Mike, if you're watching this, I respect you. I know we're not friends. We'll probably never be friends, but I respect the hell out of Mike Babbage. I respect the hell out of Andy Longusky. Um, There's some other people I won't name right now for ethical reasons that I wouldn't trust them walking my dog. You have to know the playing field. Somebody like a Mike Babbage is not going to fake a test. He's going to try and get to the truth. There's some other people that will do nothing more than try to interrogate the individuals already stressed out. We're trying to get to the truth with the polygraph. And when a prosecutor doesn't care about the truth, that's when you start losing your mind on things. That's when it becomes a fight. And you know, criminal law so often is a street fight. And I've gotten better at this. One of the reasons I've excelled at criminal law is because that natural instinct to fight, it's just there. But there's so many things that go into the process that are not needed to be fight issues. I'll tell you right now, Scott Corner, I admire the hell out of Scott Corner. Damn good prosecutor. I think one of the reasons Scott Corner is such a good prosecutor, because he was a damn good defense lawyer, you have to see both sides of the V. But with Corner, there have been times when we went to rip each other's throats out in the heat of the moment. And I could say this, there have been cases when Scott Corner did not give me what I wanted, and there are cases when I've gotten things Scott Corner did not want to give up. At the end of the day, though, there was never the hiding of evidence. There was never a non-review of evidence. There was never dirty pool being played. And that's all you could ask for. Are we going to do it right? And you got to be careful. Again, guys, listen to me carefully. The way you approach a capital case in Detroit... Is different in the way you do it in Lapeer. You are not a criminal defense lawyer that has a one-size-fits-all. When you take someone's money and you're fighting for their life, you have to know the language. You have to play the game properly and advocate. You know, and what if you find the prosecutor hit evidence? Stay tuned on that with a recent case, Keith Olson. There's things you got to do with that. But I'm not going to litigate a case this morning. On the final theme with the polygraph, one thing you could do, and this depends on your level of aggression, offer the alleged victim a polygraph. That depends on what your relationship is with the prosecution. It is illegal to force somebody to take a polygraph in the state of Michigan. But on a CSC case, the defendant has a statutory right to take a polygraph. But when that legislation was put in, in my opinion, it was done more to try to garner confessions than to seek the truth. Because I've had people pass that police test and prosecutors not care.
you could still utilize that at sentencing. You could utilize it with Cobbs and Killbrews. But you got to be careful with that. On a CSC case, when you're studying it, you got to look for motive. You have to study the motive. If somebody is truly a victim, they deserve to have their voice heard. But if somebody's lying about a heinous crime, that's a problem. And when I say offer the victim a polygraph, offer them a private polygraph, when you got something so tangible that you can run with it, you tell the prosecutor, pick any private polygrapher you want and I will pay for it. Gauge the reaction on that. Because we're looking at CSCs, which is the main capital case we're talking about right now. You have to ask yourself, is the complaining witness or the victim, do they have a motive to lie? Motives come in the following flavors. This is not an exhaustive list. Money. Is there companion civil litigation? That is the top motive. Many people feel a CSC charge will equate to a windfall economically. Number two, was there a breakup? Was there an emotional connection going wrong? And what you need to do when you're defending those CSCs, and this is something people don't do, people will take the evidence on its face. You gotta dig deeper than that. Look for text messages between the alleged victim and the defendant. If an alleged victim says the rape happened on May 16th, but they're sending nudes to the defendant on July 5th, you've got to run with that. Cell phone data is the number one way people get convicted and people get exonerated. And you will see rogue officers try to hide that. You have to study the cell phone data. You have to study the DMs on Facebook. You have to study the goddamn Snapchat if they were preserved. The Instagram post. You have to do that. And you cannot count on the prosecutor to give that to you. A dirty prosecutor will try to hide it. A lazy prosecutor will not look for it. That's on us. That's putting the offense in defense. You have to look for documentation of the relationship between the complaining witness and the defendant. You have to do that. If you don't do that, you're committing malpractice. Now, when you get in the district court, the arraignment's where it all starts, right? This is where that whole concept of self-surrender comes into play. Far too often, I do not see people do bond motions. A bond motion can really limit your exposure. Because sometimes, if somebody does not get a bond, it's going to be extremely detrimental to their defense. And the magistrate or a district court judge has to make a determination at this point is this person a flight risk? Are they a danger to the community? Is this a media case? The YouTube era via COVID has changed the concept of arguing bond. 
Many judges and magistrates are highly concerned about their image on social media. You have to take that into account when you're making this argument. You have to understand the pressure of the individual in the black robe. If you don't respect that, you're going to basically hurt your client. If the magistrate gives too low a bond, they get crap. They give too high of a bond, the defense bar comes after them. You have to argue those bond factors carefully to explain fluently why my client's not a flight risk, why they're not a danger to the community. They have retained counsel. Do they have any prior criminal history? Did they self-surrender today? It's a fluid three-page motion you should do on the capital case from day one. You know, and sometimes you have a rogue district court judge that doesn't care. Well, at that point, you got to appeal that. You can always be heard on bond at any time. Don't forget that. But don't count on your voice being heard. But if you made the effort to do a bond motion and you documented that, it gives you more teeth to appeal to the reviewing court. Lawyers don't do that enough. The bond motion is essential to preserving the freedom of your client while you're advocating for their freedom at the end of the day. Competencies are becoming more and more frequent in Michigan. And I've actually won murder cases on competencies, but the competency standard in Michigan is so low, and it should be filed in district court if you're going to file it at all. The problem with the competency referral is a couple things. Let's break this down. If you file for a competency, depending upon who the prosecutor is, you may extinguish any possibility for a plea deal. But if you don't file it, it's required you commit it malpractice. So you really have to study who is your client. Now, I had a capital case dismissed on competency about six months ago. And here's what happened in that case. When I filed the initial competency, he was deemed competent. And I'm visiting this guy in jail. This was an ultra capital case. It was a have four, which means there was serious prior criminal history. And I could not get a bond for this guy. I picked up his case from a public defender and understand something with this. This was a case that you wanted to plea out. This is one of them. You got marching orders from the family. I don't want this individual going to prison. I want to get a plea. Can you get me a local cap? Local cap means they're doing their time in jail as opposed to prison. That means the sentence will be 12 months or less. This case ended up getting dismissed, but this individual was a flight risk. But follow what happened here. The competency report came back. They say he's competent. You got to study the justification for that. Far too often the forensic center will just rubber stamp things. I think the forensic center does basically a lousy job on their competencies. They just do not put enough effort in to check out the mental health issues of the criminal defendant. That's my opinion. There's certain ones that are better than others, but I've seen people that were urinating on themselves in court and out they're fine, they're competent. It's such a low threshold. With this individual, though, 
as I was visiting him in jail, I saw his competency, in my opinion, diminish. I ordered a second competency, which is highly irregular. That competency said he's not right in the head, and the case got dismissed. You gotta watch it, because the competency referral can be made at any time. It's better to do it early on. But you gotta watch the personality of your client throughout the process. Sometimes the stress of the case itself can end up making them not competent. Sometimes they were not competent, they could be fine tomorrow. It's fluid. If you're not keeping an eye on it, you got a problem there. When you're in district court, you got to be careful with the prelim. Preliminary exam. The standard is probable cause. So what that means in English is following. If somebody says something happened, that's enough to bound it over. Now, you got to know the polls of your district court judge. Sometimes you have to run it to preserve something. And I've had that in a big case lately where they raised the bond on my client. I knew it was going to happen, but I had to preserve and get some counts dismissed. Many district court judges are going to watch their own YouTube videos. And they're going to watch the public perception. And the prelim to a district court judge is as close as they're going to get to actually having a full-blown capital trial. So when you put the judge on the prelim optical, if you would, you have to understand that some judges are going to punish you for that. You have to accept that punishment and discuss it with your client before you run it. Now, I have a rule. This is just me, and I haven't gotten some cases because of this. When there is a child alleged victim, I don't run prelims on that. I just don't. Um, I feel this. Either the child's been a victim, or the child's been coached by an angry parent, or the child has mental health issues. Either way, I could address those things in circuit court. I don't want to have to cross-examine the child twice. That's my personal opinion. When it's somebody of age, I want to slit them throat. Just want to go at them. There's a difference between the 8-year-old child who says they were molested by their father and the 22-year-old college student who's involved. Well, let me be careful there. The 22-year-old who may have a motive. You have to address these people differently. And far too often I see defense lawyers attack children at preliminary exams. You're not doing your client any good there. I've won eight preliminary exams in my career. Eight. And I've had thousands of cases. It just doesn't happen frequently. Now, prelims have set the using pleas and dismissals. But sometimes a prelim's a waste of time. And I'm going to tell you, I've won eight. Most people haven't won any. It's not something you generally win because the burden is so low. And in some counties, like in Wayne County, they'll force you to run the prelim. In places like Shiawassee, they'll appreciate you not running the prelim. You generally get rewarded for waiving the preliminary exam. But both sides have to waive it. 
And the tone of the prosecutors always will set the tone for how you handle that. If the attorney general comes in, hypothetically, and they say we're running this prelim no matter what, and you realize the judge may raise your client's bond, and you don't have the option to waive, I just say go attack. Pick like three issues that you want to preserve and use that against them at trial. When you have a normal situation, when a prosecutor is overworked, they don't want to prep for a prelim, there'll be appreciation on the waiver. The waiver's got to go both ways. So you've got to be careful with prelims. Prelim is so county-specific, it's scary. I had a case recently with a prelim where the alleged victim lied about the date, lied about the time. I showed it was legally impossible they were there. And the judge still bound it over. Now, it's something will probably get dismissed before trial or set up some great appeals or motions for legal impossibility, but understand something. It doesn't matter what happens at the prelim quite often. So you really got to say, am I doing my client a service by trying to preserve testimony? And are there several things I want to capture and lock in? Prelim is like a deposition. The problem is you get hurt with bond on that. So really gauge your audience on that one. As we get into circuit court, motion practice becomes critical. And the biggest motion, especially on CSCs, I do not see lawyers doing, is the Stanaway motion. People will tell you that I'm not a great motion writer, and I agree with that, I'm not. The one motion I really hit home with is the Stanaway motion. For whatever reason, that's the one where it's like, I got this. A standaway motion breaks through the protection of privilege. Somebody's medical records are privileged. Their psychological records are privileged. What we're trying to do with a standaway motion is display that those psychological records should be viewed by the judge in camera to determine if there's a motive for why we're here. A good standaway motion generally goes like this. You have some medical records that are causing you concern, causing you pause, displaying a reason why somebody could be lying about the CSC. And what you want to do is evolve that motion. You want to run with what you have and ask the court to help you find other records that would preserve the integrity of the proceedings. Quite often, this motion will be denied. You're running it for two reasons, guys. One, you want to preserve the issue. Part of being a criminal defense lawyer is preserving issues. If you don't run that motion, you don't preserve that issue. Number two, interlocutory appeal. An interlocutory appeal means I'm going up to the reviewing court before we get to trial. I'm trying to say respectfully, the circuit court missed this. And this is so critical. Here's why. Depending upon what panel you get at the Court of Appeals, it might carry some weight. If it doesn't, you still preserve the issue for appeals down the line. Part of our job is not just to win the case or get a great outcome, but is to preserve issues that if things did go wrong, 
your client might get another bite of the apple. And nothing is more powerful than a standaway motion, in my opinion, on CSC cases. Okay, we're at the close to 38-minute mark, and I haven't shut up. A lot more I could have talked about, but hope you found this helpful. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.